Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Thank you for joining us on this Sunday. We're looking at an Old Testament book called uh, the book of Daniel. It's very appropriate for our times. If you think our culture is headed for disaster, you're not alone. If you think uh, it's bad now and you might, might be getting worse, you're not alone there either. And you might be right. No matter how bad it gets, it will never be as bad as what Daniel experienced in Babylon. There is no evil like the evil that was in Babylon. As a matter of fact, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, this is right before Jesus appears, Revelation 18, listen to what this angel sings and shouts before the arrival of Jesus. He says, and after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, and he had, a, he had great authority, and earth was illuminated by his splendor. And he said the, with an almighty voice, he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. That's what he's screaming about, how good things are, because Babylon the great is finally fallen. Now, what's, what's interesting is Babylon does not exist in end times. It, it, it is, it, it, he's talking about the ancient Babylon that it, it won't be rebuilt. It won't uh, have the status that it had in Daniel's time. It will receive a curse and it won't be resuscitated again. But the point is, is that Babylon became the personification of evil. It, it, was, it was like no other time in our culture. It, now, Babylon wasn't necessarily the biggest or the strongest in human history, but it was the most vile. It, and, and here's why. Here's why. Because of a man named Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar. And there, there's not, not Hitler's Nazis, not Mao's right China, not Stalin's Russia. This man, Nebuchadnezzar, he had absolute authority to do whatever he wanted at any time. Even the next uh, empire, the Persians, they, they had to follow the rules that they made. Or even if the king made a rule, he had to follow his own rule. That, not the case with Nebuchadnezzar. He did whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, and he was a bloodthirsty sociopath. That's what Daniel is living in, and that's why we're studying this book, because he, he is so important to us because he, he teaches us Right, how to not, not survive, keep our heads down and try to ride it out, not to live, but rather how to thrive in a culture that's disintegrating. He is a model for us. He's, he's a template for us to follow. He gives examples on how to live. We're trying to get inside of his head because that's what we want to find out what he thinks. Because in chapter 1, when we looked at it last week, and we'll see throughout the, the book, we're going to see as we continue to grow on this lesson that we learned, chapter 1 was an introduction for the book itself, that if we're going to thrive in a Babylon, we don't probably, we probably don't need greater faith. We need a greater God to have faith in. What we need to expand is our view of God to view God the way Daniel views God. It won't take much faith if that's what, if that's what we have faith in. And, and Daniel projects out to us the type of God that is real, right, and causes us to, to, to give up and destroy the petty God that we have rumbling around in our head and replace him with the, the, the God that's talked about in the Bible, Yahweh, Jehovah, right, Adonai, Elohim, that God. We need to worship and serve that God, and then we can thrive. In chapter 2 that we'll look at today, two, two acts, you know, act 1, act 2, that sort of, it's, it's written that way. We'll have two applications 
not a lot of time today, so we're just going get, to get to it. Chapter 2 starts off, there's a pattern of, of Daniel's writing in his, in his biography. It starts off with this theme of an ominous tone, a threat soon to take place. If you know part one, it's about an impossible problem soon to happen. And it talks about Nebuchadnezzar again. The first line is about Nebuchadnezzar, and he can't sleep. Oh, no, and people will die now. It's approaching evil that's coming. Chapter 2, verse 1. And in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed such dreams that his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So the king commanded that the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king what his dream is. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had such a dream that my spirit is troubled by the desire to understand it. So let's stop because a lot is happening here and it has to do with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This is of essential importance to us because, first of all, uh, in the ancient Near East... Near Eastern times, the kings, emperors, the leaders felt that the gods were communicating directly to them through dreams and visions, and they wanted to know, right, what those, what those messages were. And this was, this was a way that God was playing into the language or the value of Nebuchadnezzar and said, here we go, I'll tell you. And here's the other part that's interesting that we, I think we're, that the author wants us to understand is that the great king Nebuchadnezzar can do anything whenever he wants. Uh, he can't sleep when he wants. See, he, he's, there's a part of his life that he cannot control, and that's where God is playing around and having the most fun with. It's almost like his mom saying, oh, oh, did, oh, did you have a bad night's sleep? Oh, that's, I wish you would. I wish you, you know, that's too bad. Still a man, still can't sleep when he wants to. He'll sleep when God wants to. But, I mean, did you listen to, to what he's projecting here as the theme of all the wise men in all the various fields, right? This is the head of the various departments of wisdom were brought into his throne room to say, you've got to help me with this dream. And so he, he brings in the magicians. Those are, they d- divine the future and the conjurers. They uh, are supposed to be able to communicate with the dead. The sorcerers, they cast spells. Now, Chaldeans, they would be what we would call astronomers or astrology. They would be the closest thing to a scientist, most accurate, but they're all in this together. And he says, you need to tell me what this dream is and how to interpret it. And they said, okay, almighty king, tell us the dream. And he said, no, I told you. I will not tell you the dream. You will tell me the dream and you will interpret the dream for me. Furthermore, if you do not tell me the dream, I will kill you by cutting you up. Some translations say, tear you limb from limb. And then I will... I will pulverize, I will plow your house into the ground, maybe even with family. Not an empty threat. It will happen. But, you know, but you know what? If you get it right, if you tell me the dream and the interpretation of the dream, I'm going to lavish great gifts on you, and I'll give you a raise, and I'll put you in authority over people. But listen, you will tell me the dream, and then you will tell me the interpretation of the dream. Verse 6 says, and so they asked for a second time. So, what's the dream? And he said, it, I, has, I have already stated to you that you will tell me the dream, and then you will tell me the meaning of the dream, or you will die a terrible death. And so right now, I feel like all you're trying to do is stall for time or get a little piece of the dream so that you can tell me some lies. But know this. You're going to tell me the dream, and you're going to tell me the interpretation of that dream. 
And so the point is, all of this is setting up this fact. Everyone wants to establish this truth. There's no debating this. 10 through 11. And the Chaldeans answered the king, and he's answering for all the head of the departments, right? Say, uh, there is no one on earth that can reveal what the king demands. As a matter of fact, there's no king, however great or powerful, has ever even asked such a thing for magicians or enchanters or Chaldeans. What the king asks is too difficult. No one, no one can reveal to the king except for gods, yeah, and they don't live among humans. That's the point of the impossible problem, right? You're asking us for something that's impossible. No king has ever asked for that. You, you, can't, you can't do that. And third of all, you know, the only, only a God, only a God would be able to tell you what you dreamt, what you were dreaming, and they don't walk among the humans. That's been established. They, they throw that back at the king, and, well, he, you know, those are, those are three reasonable things, right? And so what does he do? It says, he flew into a violent rage and said, kill them, kill them all. And he sends out a decree that is going to have all the wives men, wise men killed in all of Babylon, even Daniel. That's setting up the first part of our story here. And makes us, here's the application. What if, what if a lot of our Christian walk, what if our life in faith is actually putting us in circumstances and situations so that we are backed into the corner of impossibility? Let me just, let me just propose this. What if the reason you're supposed to be growing in faith is not so you could become more comfortable or successful or have more control, but really, what if some of the things that God is up to in your life is to put you in a place where you can say, with all the magicians and the Chaldeans and the sorcerers, this is impossible. No one can get us out of this. There's no way this could happen. Only God. What if, what if God wants you in a place at work or an impossible marriage or a personality trait that has to be you know, changed? Or, or some kind of addiction that must be overcome, but it can't be, it won't be, until you realize that it, it, it's impossible. And no one has ever been able to do this. Only, the, only a God who would walk among us could change this. Maybe, what if that were the part of our Christian life that maybe we're ignoring and we're trying to make sense out of a lot of our life, and it makes sense if this is part of it. What are you like when you're backed into the corner of the impossible. I mean, I mean, you know what I mean? What, what, how do you respond to that? No way out. You're trapped. A lot of people get depressed. They just turn in and they start sulking and they, and they don't get up. Some people are rather gifted at denying. They, they're very good at whistling. They whistle, 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 all just go away. My personal favorite, rage. I like anger. Everybody around me is walking on eggshells waiting for, you know, somebody to drop a toothpick and then I'm going to lose it on them. <laughs> this passage here, the reason we're studying it is because isn't our faith in a great God supposed to make a significant difference in our life in the world of the impossible? Wouldn't you think your, your life with Christ and the power of the Spirit that's in you should change the way you respond? It should, absolutely. And so I want you, I want you to see three things that Daniel does as an example for all of us the way we're supposed to respond to the impossible. 
Okay? Three things that Daniel does that we're supposed to be doing when we're living an obedient Christian life. The first thing he does is he kept his humble composure. Next sentence. Okay, he finds, by the way, he's had, the person he's going to be talking to is his executioner. Ding dong. Hey, how's it going? Fine. I've come to dismember you limb from limb. And so here's how he responds to that. And Daniel responded with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the king's chief executioner, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he asked Arioch, this is in the next verse, it's not up there, why, why is this decree to the king so urgent? What happened? And so he told Daniel, and, and, so, and then verse 16, and so Daniel went and requested that the king would give him time so that he would tell him of his dream and his interpretation. Okay. You want to thrive in Babylon? Listen to how polite and humble he is. You want to thrive in Babylon? Play nice. <laughs> really? Play nice. See how far that goes. Second thing he does, he goes and gets his friends. Verse 17. He went to his friends, and then Daniel went to his home and informed his companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he told them, he, this is, we got to all get in on this. And so let me just, this is an application simply. If, if, you should have at the top of your to-do list to have two, three, oh, you'd be blessed if you had three, very close friends. If you're not going through a time of crisis, you will be going through a time of crisis. And while, what, what's the saying? In a time of peace, prepare for war. In this lull, if you're not going through a crisis right now, you should have at the top of your list to have a great friend. Not a room full of acquaintances, not some people to, you know, to enjoy something with, but someone to know you and to help you. It's very easy for us to get distracted. It's easy for us to fill our schedules up with things. We're pursuing our goals, our, you know, maybe sometimes our vocational ambitions. Sometimes it's just, you know, van driving, right? You have to put on that to-do list first to find and make and be a great friend. That's the, one of the applications here. The second one would be is if you're in a time of crisis, are you trying to do it on your own? Right, look what he did. He, he realizes how dire this is, and he goes to his three friends. Are you trying to do something that Daniel wouldn't do, carry it, his, carry it on his own back? It, it, is, it is such, a, it's such a, an honoring. That's a, good, that's a great word. It's an honoring thing. For you to go somewhat to someone that you know that you care for and that cares for you and say, and you say, can you help me? Can you carry the, some of this burden for me? Help, help me understand how to feel about this. I'm going to tell you a story. Tell me how to feel about it. Tell me what to think about this. Can we kind of walk, can we walk this thing together for a while? You give honor to people. It's an honoring thing to have someone do that for you. So that's what he does. That's what Daniel does. That's how you live and that's how you thrive in a Babylonian impossibility. You, you maintain your humble respect for authority. You go and get your friends, and then what do you do? You pray. You pray with these friends, verse 18. And he urged these friends, okay, to seek the mercy of God of heaven concerning this mystery. And so the Daniel and his companions with the rest of the wise men of Babylon might not perish. There's, I think there's four major theological uh, themes in the book of Daniel. Two of them are right here in this chapter. Sovereignty of God and the power of prayer, the way God responds to human prayer. I know some of you might think those are contradictions, but that's because you have a squirrel's brain and you're trying to figure out chess. So 
those, they're here and they work together. God is sovereign and he responds to prayer. And so that's what he does. He, he, he brings every, one writer said, scholar put it this way. This is the first instance of united prayer recorded in Scripture, and the fact that these children of captivity are resorting to it, that's how we discover this is the secret of thriving. Thriving. His word, not mine. How do you thrive? You get your friends together, and you pray for the greatness of God to do something impossible. Because here's what prayer does. Once you, when you get into the, when it's not a list, a to-do list for the divine being to get on, when you understand prayer, what it is, it's, we are so self-reliant. And let's just pretend that's on a dashboard in our souls. Prayer turns off the self-reliant switch, doesn't it? It, it just, it, by, by definition, doesn't it say, I'm in way over. I can't do a lot. I can't do this thing. I'm impossible. This is impossible, Right? The Chaldeans and the sorcerers and the conjurers and all that. Nope, everybody agrees this can't happen. I'm going to pray. I, we are stubbornly self-reliant, and it says, I can't do this. What if, what if a major aspect of your walk with God is not to cause you to be comfortable or in control or successful, but rather is to move you to a place of impossibility so that you would see the greatness and the bigness of God by maintaining your composure, by making great friends and calling them all to prayer. I think that's part of life. I think that's a major aspect of the Christian life that we ignore. And we think God is, sometimes we think God is up to trouble. He doesn't like us when he's actually getting us in a breakthrough moment. Because if you get to that place of prayer with friends about, the, about God doing the impossible, then you can say what, what Daniel says here. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you, the God of Daniel, wise and powerful. Look at verse 19 through 23. This is the God of Daniel. And then Daniel, the mystery uh, was revealed to Daniel in the vision at night. And so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. This is the God of heaven we're supposed to have in our souls, in our minds. Daniel said, blessed be the name of God from age to age. Here it is, wisdom and power. There it is again. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and sets kings up. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. To you, O God of my ancestors, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and power. You are wisdom and power. You have given me wisdom and power and have now revealed to me what we ask for you. And you have revealed to us what the king has ordered. That's the God of Daniel. That's the God. That's the God that's greater than the God that we probably live with, live with and that's why we're in fear so much. This is how you thrive. You have a bigger God. That's how. And God puts us into a corner that, by definition, everybody agrees is impossible so that we would pray to him with friends to see him work in his greatness. Well, he receives right, this dream and the interpret interpretation of the dream. And so, it's, so, we, so he shows up, to Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, and everybody wants to say, you did it, Daniel. And here's what's interesting, is Daniel, Daniel is quoting them. No, 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 no. 
I'm not smart. You said this was impossible. I'm just, let me, look what he says. I'm just, refu- I'm just reviewing what we've already known. 27. And Daniel answered the king, no, no, no. Remember, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or diviners can show the king the mystery that the king was asking for because it was impossible. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. That's who I've been talking to. And he has disclosed to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the end of days. But as for me, Ah, this mystery has not been revealed to me because I uh, have any wisdom, that I have any more than any other living being, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts in your mind. It's a God thing, he says. You know what? God wants you to have several God thing stories that are backed into a, a, an issue of impossibility with relationships or personality change or marriage or work, pray, blaze through because of his power and his wisdom, and then people say, man, you're a pretty good businessman. I am not a good businessman. It was a God thing. I'm not a nice person. God changed me. See, it's a God. God wants you to have those stories in your life. He loves when we talk about his greatness. So you want, you want, you want to be part of the impossible? Here's what you need to do. You want to be part of the impossible. You have to desire to be part of God's story. You have to desire to have a bigger God than the one you have in your head that keeps you afraid, that keeps you safe. A God that's wise and powerful. And then you have to pursue friendships, band of brothers, just two, maybe three, that you can pray for the miraculous to happen. That's act one. Boom. That's enough for today, isn't it? I mean, right, it's heavy stuff. Okay, act two is the interpretation of the dream. It's a change of kind of focus. And this is the, interpre- the dream interpretation. And, and, and I want you to see the power of, there's, there's two paragraphs here essentially. And I'll, I'll, let me read you a quote by Old Testament scholar Feinberg. He said, no dream recorded or referred to in the Bible before this or since has ever revealed so much world history. Here in one panoramic sweep, the whole history of human civilization is spread before us from the days of Nebuchadnezzar to the end of time. These two paragraphs are the backbone of all of Bible prophecy. These two paragraphs get this book in more trouble than any set of paragraphs maybe in the Bible. This is why that second paragraph is why people don't like the Bible. It's why scholars go after it with their little microscopes and try to cut it apart. I'll show you why in just a minute, okay? Most of this, what we're going to read, most of this has already happened. So it's from Nebuchadnezzar to, you know, the Roman period of time. And some of it still will happen. I want you to, when I read the story to you, I want you to be listening for, okay, I'm going to get, I'll show you a picture of a statue. That's he, he views a statue. But I want you to be listening for how uh, the the precious, the precious nature of the metals will be descending. It'll start with gold and end with, you know, like a rock, okay? And then I want you also to, to listen for the transient nature of these empires, okay? Here today, yeah, whatever. So here, here's the dream. Here's, so here's the dream. We'll do the interpretation later. Here's the dream, okay? You were looking, O king, and lo, there was a great statue, a statue of huge. Its brilliance was extraordinary. It was standing before you, and its appearance was frightening to you. The head of the statue was fine gold, and the chest was, and arms were silver. The middle and thighs, they were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet partly iron and partly clay. 
And then Nebuchadnezzar, you saw in your dream an uncut stone flying through the sky, hitting the feet, causing the statue to fall upon itself. Then it was shattered and turned to powder. A wind caught that powder and blew it completely away. And the stone began to grow, and it filled the entire dream. That's the dream. Okay, before we go any further, can, can we just go back and, and visualize what's happening here? Okay, the king has a, a dream from God. All the wise men and the head of departments were sent out, and they're running for their lives because they were going to be dismembered, and their houses were going to be plowed into the ground. Now, everybody's gathered up in this throne room, and all the wise men are sitting on the edge of their seats, and a 17-year-old foreign boy is telling them the way it is because he has a great big God, and he's got some friends that pray for him. A God that's all-powerful and all-wise. 17 years old. I'll tell you how the world's going to end. And this is what he tells him. The first one is the Babylonian Empire. He says, O king of king of kings, to whom God... <laughs> he, gives, he gives God the credit for Nebuchadnezzar's rule. The king of kings, whom God in heaven has given you this kingdom, this power, this might, this glory... Into your hand he has given human beings and whatever lives, the wild animals in the field, the birds in the air, to whom he has established the ruler over all these things. You're the head. The head is gold. Now, while I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar is pretty happy that he's at the top and he's the most precious metal, Daniel is extremely courageous here to say, God gave you that. And then there's the second part. Silver. The Persian Empire comes next. The, it takes over the Babylonian Empire, and then after that comes the, the, what, the bronze, and that's the Grecian Empire, the Greeks. And it says in there, part of the uh, prophecy is that it will rule all of the earth. And it's believed that that's the Greek Empire because Alexander the Great ruled the most real estate by far, but not with a lot of control, which brings us to the iron and the two legs, and that's the Roman Empire, because the Roman Empire took over, right, the Persian Empire that took over the Greek Empire, and it was known for its strength. It's, quote, as strong as iron, it crushed with its power anybody that would, would cause difficulties. And again, it's pretty somewhat easy to see that it's the Roman Empire because of the two legs. Or there was an Eastern Roman Empire and a Western Roman Empire, and so it is, right? And the stone, the stone that flies, that's, that's the kingdom of God. Verse, I'll read it particularly and on that. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, and it shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall crush all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw the stone had cut down the mountain, not by hands, or the stone that was cut from a mountain, but not by hands, it will crush the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold. The great God has informed the king what shall come about hereafter. The dream is certain. The interpretation has trustworthiness. It will happen. And this kingdom of God started at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's kind of a thing called already not yet. And it will go on until this, the, the actual expression of it, where the, it comes down, that's at the return of Jesus. And, but, but please note this distinction. All those other kingdoms, they just as absorbed and they restructured what was before them. God's kingdom 
shatters, crushes, powders, blows it into the wind. It is the kingdom of God, and it is ruled by a monarch, and his name is Jesus, and he's the king. It's not like other kingdoms. It will last forever. That's, that's the prophecy. That paragraph, the interpretation of the dream, is one of the most uh, attacked paragraphs in the Bible. It's the reason Deuteronomy or Daniel gets in so much trouble. Do you know why? Because one of the things they try to do is they try to date that because, again, the prophecy is rather obvious now. So people will say there's a Deutero-Daniel. There's a second Daniel, and he wrote it, I don't know, 400 A.D. or 100 A.D., just looking back. Do you know why a person would believe that? Why would it be so difficult to believe that God could write this when Daniel wrote it? Because if, if Daniel wrote this in 600 B.C. or so, then that means it was all going to happen. And what kind of person knows what will happen and could cause it to happen? Oh, we love throwing our weight around as humans, right? I can be the writer and the director of something. I will write a movie, and then I will direct a movie. I know how it ends, and I'll make it end that way. I can be a programmer, and I will know how this game will end, and I can program it so that you have to end up getting there with the ring in the basement to make that happen. We like it when we're sovereign. We like to use our sovereignty. But when, when God shows up, the God of heaven, and says, this is how all of human civilization will play itself out, wow. That means we're not in charge. It means, it means that, that, that human history actually has a purpose. It means there's a director. It means there's a writer. It means that God is awesome. If he just knew it, he'd be all-knowing. But if he causes it, that means he's, all, he's, he's wise and powerful. He's sovereign. And do you know what is the natural, uh, with, without, even, without even choosing, the natural response, the auto-response to f having an encounter with an almighty God that is wise and powerful? This is why people are afraid of this book. Because when you face what's real, this is the only way you can respond. Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 46, and then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. Let me see that again. King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and worshiped Daniel. And he commanded that grain offerings and incense offerings be given to him. And the king said to Daniel, truly your God is God of all gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. And you have been able to reveal this mystery to us. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and they won't have to be told to do it. Have you met this Jesus? Do you understand the God of Daniel? This is how Nebuchadnezzar responds, and everyone else will. This is the application for this second part. It's, um, it's, it's all about perspective. It's all about letting God be God. All of him, right? Frederick the Great was asked, asked one time to one of his philosophers, can you give me, let me read it, can, can you give me one single irrefutable proof for the existence of God? And his philosopher said, sure, the Jews. And this is in 1779. 
And there's a lot of explaining to do in that simple answer, but it, the point is, is that in the history of the Jews is a small little tribal group that everyone wants to not kill or just put over here, but to annihilate, to cause into ex- extinction, to obliterate, to end their existence completely. That's their history. Various people trying to eliminate, erase them from world history, and yet they're still here. And the reason is, there's only one reason, <laughs> right? He's, he's got a, Israel is in protective custody of God Almighty, and you can do whatever you want, but anybody that goes after Israel soon loses their existence in human history. And I would say this, I'd say this, is there a proof for the existence of God? Irrefutable? Yes, I'd say the church. Civilizations come and civilizations go, and the church lives on. How many times have we heard the death of the church, and yet it only, you know, gets resurrected again? Because God promises the Jews, and God promised the church certain things, and this church will go all the way to the end, and it will be this stone that crushes all of these empires and will grow and grow and fill the world. And that's the story of the gospel, friends. That's the story of the gospel. Perspective. When you see things from God's point of view, you worry less. You aren't concerned about little things anymore. When you have a perspective of what Daniel has, right? The perspective of that God is awesome and powerful. We can, let's learn from the kids across the parking lot, right? In the Live Oak building. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. He's got the little bitty baby in his hands. He's got everything in his hands. And when you see that God has everything in his hands, when you have that perspective, you can be safe while everybody else is, is, is shivering, right? You, you can be calm when everybody else is in a panic. If you don't have that perspective, and God is this small little thing you keep in your back pocket so you can rub him when you need help, then, right, uh, some inconvenience is some kind of persecution. Some disagreement is an attack on you. Have you, have you seen... Have you seen, this is how people are about life. Have you seen parents, you know, those parents, right, at a baseball game, I'm talking about Little League, you know, coach pitch, Little League, and there's dads usually on the fence screaming at an umpire, right? He was saved. I mean, you know, the veins, the whole deal, right? Ah! And, and what's wrong with that? I mean, what's wrong with that? Perspective. That's what's wrong with it because, you know, no one's, it, that doesn't matter. It doesn't, it's a, it's a kid's game. It's a kid playing a game. It's a kid's game. And in a year it won't matter. In a month it won't. When that kid gets a snow cone, the game's over. He, he's absolutely, that's why he's out there is for that snow cone. And there's a dad that doesn't have perspective on what matters. And he's shaking the fence about a bad call on third base. How much of our life is that crazy dad? The lack of wisdom and power in our life, lack of perspective. And here's what, here's what I've seen in life. It's like when one author called the dimmer switch of our faith. And you'll see that in, that, in, in, in Daniel's praise of God. The God is like, he, he, the light he gives us is just enough to take a couple of steps and if we take those two steps, the dimmer switch goes up. He gives us another couple steps. Then we can go out a couple more steps, and then the dimmer switch goes up, and we can see a little more, and we go out a little bit more. It's a journey, friends. It's a journey into relative darkness, 
because we're trusting God for the impossible. Here's the downside of the dimmer switch. If you don't step out, you stay there. And fear the patience of God. He'll leave you there. And there's issues in our lives, whether it's an impossible marriage, impossible relationship, impossible addiction, impossible personality trait that have to be overcome by the impossible God. And if you don't step out, you'll stay there. I've been doing this so long, it hurts me to know how many people stopped 20 years ago because they had a personality trait they thought was worth holding on to. I mean, good grief. There's nothing sacred about our personalities. And yet they stayed there, and the rest of Christendom moved on. Because their God wasn't so big, and they thought he was more polite and he wouldn't meddle with his personality, and, and he would. Look, the conclusion of this chapter, okay, is, is, is very much like the first conclusion. Uh, um, the conclusion of the first chapter, conclusion of the second chapter is like the conclusion of the first. Remember the first one starts off, the great Nebuchadnezzar who has all power and could do whatever he wants. He can't sleep. This chapter ends with Daniel, right, a 17-year-old captive from Jerusalem, Tucking Nebuchadnezzar in, saying, now you can sleep, my king. Now you can sleep. Last two sentences of this chapter, they read like this. And now Daniel received gifts and honors and was put in charge of all the wise men in Babylon. And Daniel asked that his three friends might be promoted as well. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego also joined in the, you know, the promotion. And then the last sentence. And Daniel stayed in the palace with the king. Who's in charge here? God's in charge here. I know, I know. We love a God that uses, you know, a, a trash-talking teenage boy to fling a rock at some loudmouth giant to take him down and then take his head. But I'm here to tell you this. This is what this book is about. In a hostile culture, God likes sneaking around. He likes using polite and respectful young men that have a perspective of a great God who's wise and powerful. He, God will roar. He's a lion, and he will roar when he wants to. But when he quietly and secretly tours what, what he owns, he's still king. That's the God you need to serve. Let's blow up our old view of God, and replace it with this God of all power and all wisdom. Shall we? Let's do that. Let's pray, and then next week, you don't want to mix next week, okay? Lord Jesus, we lift up uh, the things we could learn from this today. Here's the God that Daniel prayed to. Lord, could you be that God in us? Blessed be your name from age to age. Wisdom and power is yours. Wisdom and power is yours. You change the times and season. You depose kings and presidents and set up kings and presidents. You give wisdom to the wise, dimmer switch. You give knowledge to those who have understanding, dimmer switch. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and what dwells in, in the light. Oh, God of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, I give thanks and praise to you for the wisdom and power you gave to me because I turned up the dimmer switch. God, let us get up and walk towards your greatness. 
I'd ask, Lord, this week that you would put us in an impossible situation so that we might see the grandness of your power by going to a friend's and seeing how we can pray you through that barricade. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.